Jesus said to love our enemies, but that is hard to do. Most of the time, we pretend that we don't have any because, well, I don't really hate them, we say. But every now and then, people will come into our lives that are hard to get along with. They get under our skin. It's a critic that we can't impress. It's a skeptic that we can't persuade. It's a powerful person that we can't follow. A close friend or an ally that we can't trust. And when that person comes into our life for a short season, it seems like everything is just thrown topsy-turvy. And we start to question whether or not we're Christians at all. We should feel better about this. We should be better at this thing. After all, loving your enemies is the point of departure between Christianity and every other religion. I mean, we're Christians not because we come to church, not because we believe this set of doctrines called the Apostles' Creed. We're Christians and we're known as such because when the heat is on, we behave as Christians. That's how people know. And so when these people come into our lives, it, we're not really sure whether we're Christians or not. 80% of the problems we have in the workplace right now is coming from people like I just mentioned, 80%. When you ask, why do you hate your job? Why do you keep calling in sick? They'll say it's the boss that is too demanding. It's the supervisor that is insensitive or cold. It's an ally. It's a close confidant in my workplace that stabbed me in the back. It's someone who's always asking for favors but never giving anything in return. They're moochers. And we don't know what to do with them. And so it's easier just to call off. This year, I started reading the Gospels, looking for them. And they're everywhere. They're all over Jesus's life. Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Roman soldiers, the chief priests, the crowds, the mob, if you will. Even his closest allies become for a moment like an enemy. And as I read these stories of how Jesus dealt with them, I noticed it's quite different from the way I do. Slowly a pattern emerged. And as it did, I started writing little laws to myself. <laughs> Tried to remember them, hoping it would change the way I would deal with my short-term enemies. Here's the first rule. I cannot control the people that come into my life. So I don't choose my company. I welcome it, all of them, whether they're pleasant or not, because I'm not in control. I can't divide my life into people I want to see and those I don't because there's just too many people <laughs> I don't want to see are in my life. So either I resist that and I start labeling these people and avoid them, or I presume that they come to me by design from the Father. And if that's true, then I have to receive them. Rule number two, the way I receive these people 
takes the form of language. It's the way I talk about them. See, the way they occur to me is the way I talk about them, and the way I talk about them reinforces the way they occur to me. So if I want to change the way my enemies occur to me, I have to stop waiting to feel differently about them and start talking about them in different language. This is where the Psalms are so powerful, especially the Psalms of lament, because they give us language for talking about people that drive us out of our minds. The Psalms teach us that it is possible to be angry, frustrated, sometimes feeling even violent, and at the same time, trusting God and consigning my life over to him. These are not two opposite feelings. It's okay to feel both of them at the same time. You must stop waiting to get over your complaint before you start thanking God for his sovereignty. It's okay in the same prayer. You feel like a hypocrite. I know that. But the Psalms teach us in language that is redemptive that it's okay. I must talk about them differently. Rule three, then I'm done. When more come to me, I'll tell you. The most redemptive language for my enemies is language that speaks of the future, not the past. It's, it's more important to speak about the way things could be instead of staying in the present or complaining about the past. So much of our language is past. And it complains, but it is more redemptive to speak. Somewhere in his sermons on strength to love, Martin Luther King Jr. said to the white population, that were controlling everything in his day, that he longed for a freedom that his enemies could enjoy the benefit of. This is how you know what false power is. It always has a victim. There is always a victim, always a loser when false power is at work. This is what's wrong with so much of the language today about justice. It simply creates other victims. True justice is large enough for both we and our enemies to live in. So language that articulates a broad space for us and our enemies and a bright future is the language that's most redemptive. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about how do you follow a leader who is corrupt? They abuse power. 
Now I'd like to address how you lead people who won't follow. Now I realize that's not all of you. You're not all in a position of leadership. So I'm taking a great risk this morning and speaking mostly to those who are. And I have a few moments. How do you follow someone or lead someone who is, what do we say, stubborn, opinionated, entitled, belligerent? How do you lead someone who shows up for work and then avoids it like the plague? How do you teach a student who hates your class because they don't need to know what you're teaching? And how do you lead an employee who complains about everything you've done, even though they themselves have never led anything? How do you lead a player who will not live up to their potential? How do you lead a pastor who complains about the denominational leaders? How do you lead a person who always says right, 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 right to everything you say, even though they don't have a clue what you're talking about? It's their default, right, right, right. And you're just saying, dude, I just dropped a bomb on you. Right, right, right. How do you get in front of people like that? Somewhere in your life, there is a student who won't listen, a follower you inherited from the last leader, a stepchild you inherited from your spouse's previous marriage. Somewhere in your life is someone who, when you talk, they won't listen. When you lead, they won't follow. And what you require, they promptly ignore. But you can't ignore them. In fact, you're responsible for them. For this, we'll need the disciples. And there is this verse in Matthew 17 that has given me, well, language for how one feels in a moment like this. And I've used it many times, never in front of you. This is the first time. In the words of Jesus, how much longer must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? There it is. That's powerful, isn't it? You were thinking it would be something more pastoral, more forgiving, you know, something real conciliatory. But I think it's this moment in total exasperation. They come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, or if you will, out of a worship service, and at the base of the mountain, or if you will, in the atrium right after the service, a father runs up with a boy who's demon-possessed, and this is what he says, Lord, have mercy. I asked your disciples, but they could not heal him. And in a moment of exasperation, <laughs> Jesus says, oh, unbelieving and distorted generation, how much 
longer must I be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? And every leader in the room knows that moment. Your followers don't, but you've said it in private. This is not language of arrogance. It could be. But sometimes as a leader, you are stuck in between the way the follower is performing and the way they could be performing. It's what they've settled for and what they're capable of. It's the present and it's the future and you're caught in this tension and this tension breeds a frustration. And if we don't find language for the frustration, it becomes internal and it settles into a constant state of anger that seeps out in hundred different ways. And some leaders simply check out. They mail it in. I won't care any more than my followers care. And the entire company sinks. But it's not my fault, they say. Other leaders just stay in that constant state of turmoil and frustration. This is why studying how Jesus dealt with followers, disciples who won't follow was so important for me. It would have been better if they would have just said to him, look, we're not interested. Nothing you say matters, but they didn't. Every time he talked, they would not. Yep, right, right, right. And then promptly go out and do something else. He would say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. They would say, yep, right, that's right. And then they would argue amongst themselves as to who would be the greatest three times in Matthew alone. He would say, you must humble yourself and become like a child. Then they would say, yep, right. Never heard anything like that. That's a great sermon. And then a week later, they would force the children that were coming to Jesus to leave. He would tell them that the father forgave them and they would promptly ask, how many times do we have to forgive a brother? Is seven enough? You can hear him counting, waiting for eight. He would talk about laying down his life and they would say, we've laid down everything for you and we got nothing in return. So the problem with Jesus's followers is not that they were disobedient. It's that they were not aligned and that's what bothered him, I think. In Matthew 16, he put it like this. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of a man. You're not thinking like God thinks. You're thinking like a human thinks. You're trapped inside your own ideas. So the problem with Jesus' followers 
is not that they didn't believe in him. It's that they didn't believe him. And they didn't believe what he believed. So when he talked about power, he meant one thing. They were always thinking another. When he talked about greatness, he meant this. They always thought that. In success, he was always on another page. In glory, always on another page. So they could use the same language and be talking right past each other because they were not thinking like the leader was thinking. And he was not after their obedience. He was after their heart and their minds. He wanted them to think like he did. And they were so far behind. And right here, is where the message cut me for the first time. Because I have a feeling, people, that we are no longer talking about the disciples. I think we're talking about us. I think we can come into worship services every single week and affirm things we don't do. We will say by default to love our enemies and then go out and post the most vicious things about people we don't agree with. Not somebody else, us. James said, out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. Same mouth sometimes minutes apart. So what occurs to me is maybe the first step in getting people to follow us is to follow him. Maybe the problem with their followership is our leadership. And maybe what they're really revolting against when they don't listen is that gap of what they hope is true about him that is not yet true about us. In this last episode in Matthew chapter 20. It's the last story in a sequence of stories where Jesus says one thing and they do something else. He finally lays everything on the table. He spells it out, and that's why we're here. It occurs in a couple of scenes. In the first scene, chapter 20, verse 17, 18, and 19, Jesus is walking with a group of followers and suddenly he pulls the 12 aside and he says, wait for it, for the fourth time in Matthew, four times now, the Son of Man must be betrayed, handed over, flogged, mocked, crucified, and then on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples 
are nodding. Yep, that's right. That's right. By now, they understood this. The Son of Man is going to be mocked, and then he's going to be crucified, and then he will rise again. They couldn't have missed it, and I don't think they did. I think the way they interpreted that was in an if-then way. So it would go like this. If the Son of Man is handed over and mocked, then he will rise again. If the Son of Man is last, then he will become first. If the Son of Man humbles himself, then he will become great. If the Son of Man gives up his life, then he will become rich. They always saw humility and generosity as a way into the same old tired definitions they had all their life. And Jesus was saying something fundamentally different. If you humble yourself, you are not on the way to greatness. That is greatness. In the Father's economy, that is greatness. If you pour yourself out, you will not someday be rich. You are rich on the day you pour yourself out. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it on the day you lose it. And if you ever start taking it back again, you will lose it again on that day and never find it. If the Son of Man is lifted up on a cross, that is his glory. It's not a pit stop on the way to the resurrection. It is a new definition of glory. When he is lifted up on a cross, he forces his enemies to reveal their true agenda. This is what they are capable of. And in that same moment, he lives out a life of innocence and integrity. This is who he really is. This is the kind of person we are capable of killing. And in a strange way, it is Jesus' enemies that get nailed to the cross while Jesus himself becomes the glory of the entire world. Do you understand? It's not on the way to glory. It is the glory. They miss this. And because they missed it, Mrs. Zebedee walks up in the middle of this conversation about laying down his life. And she says, Jesus, I have a favor. Now, first, I have a problem. See, I read this 
again and again. And, and, and it looks like when Mrs. Zebedee approached Jesus asking for a favor, it looks like her two boys were right there with her. I had to put the Bible down. I was thinking, you ask your mother? To go to Jesus and beg you a favor? Dude, that ain't right. There's something fundamentally wrong with you. Ask mama to get you a favor from Jesus. Hmm. She says, do me a favor. He says, what do you want? That's a blank check. She says, grant that my son will serve, sit on your right side, and my other son will sit on your left when you enter your kingdom. Do you hear what she is saying? Yes, yes, I hear all the stuff about crucifixion, dying, handing over, and all. Yeah, yeah, got it. Check, check, check. Now, when you finally get that kingdom, give my boys a place on the right and the left. And, and, and this is Jesus saying, honey, that is the kingdom. You keep thinking it's a shortcut to get the same thing you always wanted. Mrs. Zebedee, the problem is in what you want. It is way off. You are talking about another kingdom. If you think serving on the right or the left is gonna give you a place of privilege. So what Jesus says to her is, you don't know what you're asking. He's not insulting her. It's a statement of fact. She doesn't know what she's asking. How could she know this? In fact, the right and the left will be two thieves, not two disciples, two thieves. And, and the kingdom will be a cross, not a throne. And these places, the right and the left, will be places of shame, not honor. You don't know what you're asking. Finally, he turns to the boys, oh man, and says, can you drink the cup that I drink? It's an Old Testament metaphor. It's a cup of bitterness. Can you drink the cup of bitterness? Why? Because that's the kind of kingdom it is. And they think about it for a half second and they go, pss, pss. yeah, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> then he says, 
Well, you will. You will. Sure enough, every one of them but one was martyred. Every one but one. Nevertheless, he says, this is not for me to decide. This must be decided by the Father. Now, when the other 10 hear this, they are livid. I, I don't think it's because they're more righteous. I think it's because they got beat in the race to see Jesus. Dog, I was going to do that tomorrow. So Jesus is sensing there's chaos in the small community, and he pulls the disciples aside, and he goes into a speech in the last scene about what true power, success, glory, and greatness is. And this is the way he puts it. There is the way that they do it, and there is the way that I do it. The way that they do it is when they get power and authority, they lord it over people, and the way that I do it is I serve. And therein lies my power and authority. A servant leader is not a leader who serves. It's a servant, whether they're a leader or not. The problem with the disciples is not their request for leadership. The problem is their definition of leadership. They think leadership is attached to a place or a position. It's on the right or the left. And when I have it, I will have power and I will have privilege. Jesus knows that leaders are not appointed by their superiors. They're chosen by their followers. So you can sit on the right or the left in positions of authority and not be a leader. You can just have your position and you can be a powerful leader without sitting on the right or the left. So if you're a leader and you have to keep telling your followers that you're the leader, <laughs> you aren't. They've already chosen somebody. Someone who is close to you, probably. So you must stop asking yourself, how do I get people to follow me? And start asking yourself, what do people follow? What do they want? and need, and how do I become that person? I believe people have an insatiable thirst for another set of definitions about power, success, greatness, and glory. And sometimes the reason they don't follow us is because we are calling for the same definitions they left and they are not sustainable. They hunger for another kind of power, one that multiplies when you give it away, not one that is scarce. And when they see it, they migrate toward it. 
whether it is on the right or left or at the bottom. It doesn't matter to them. They can't say it. They can't articulate it. But this is what they want. I believe people follow people. Not visions. And certainly not organizational charts. I don't. And I believe people follow a servant. I believe everybody in your scope of influence right now is asking him this question. They won't tell you, but this is the question. Are you here for me or am I here for you? They won't ask you because you can't answer that with words. You'll always say, oh, I'm here for you. But they will watch your actions and they'll know. And when they find someone who is here, for their success instead of our own and not the organizations. Someone who is invested in their growth and wisdom and knowledge, they will follow that person. Well, all of this has left me pretty rattled about my own leadership in our church. The last year has been one uh, where as a leader, things are changing all the time. So if you're in the audience and you're feeling picked on, brother, I am with you. I am certainly not in front of you. If you've led anything in the last 12 months, then you know all of your Achilles heels have been exposed to the world. See, the truth is most leaders don't know for sure what they're doing. They just don't tell you that. But in the last 12 months, it's been evident to everybody we don't know what we're doing. And, and, and in that uncertainty, we sometimes power up. We feign a confidence to try to get people to follow us. And that is exactly the opposite direction we're talking about. So this morning has been a moment for me to assess my own leadership in our church. And I'm calling on the leaders in our church to do the same for your domains.